If that mic wasn't on, you have very good acoustics in here. <laughs> Is that working now? Okay. Um, what I was thinking of, as just, just as I was sitting there, is I was reminded of the verse in James, um, where it says, Blessed are the poor in this world, for they are rich in faith. And I think that that's not just about socioeconomic status, but also about even poor, you know, the way we might think of it spiritually or in terms of how people are functioning, the needy. And I have been more challenged uh, to deepen my theology and study the Word of God by people in recovery from addiction than probably by many Bible readings. No, no criticism of Bible readings, but they are rich in faith. They're rich in faith. And that's why we need people in our gatherings that are struggling because they have so much to offer and they compel us to dig deeply as well. Let's read about addiction in, in Proverbs chapter 23. This uh, is a reference to alcoholism, which is one kind of addiction. We could substitute the word marijuana in here or maybe smartphones or gambling or Fortnite, whatever it might be. Who has woe? Proverbs 23 verse 29. Uh, I guess some of these features are particular to alcohol, alcoholism. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause or without explanation? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beat me, but I did not feel it. That's denial in addiction. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? So this identifies some of the common ailments of addiction that we see in modern day addictions as well. You have in verse 29 at the very start there, that list of woe, sorrow, contentions, complaints, and so on. Those are the negative consequences of addiction. You have in the second half of verse 30 and then down into verse 31, it talks about going in search of the wine and then looking at it when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. That's the craving, that's the ritualized pursuit of the fix and and the whole enchantment uh, uh, of, the, of the urge to, to partake as you're engaging with your ritual. And then you have in verse 32, the inability to see past the acting out or to the consequences. Uh, at last, it bites like a serpent. So that is not seen to the, to the person struggling with addiction as they move towards the object of their addiction. You see another consequence in verse 33, the loss of normal restraint your heart will utter perverse things. So this happens under the influence of, or caught in the cycle of an addiction. And then in verse 35, as I mentioned, when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? And before that, they struck me, but I wasn't hurt. I can smoke marijuana, it doesn't affect my brain. It's denial, right? That's a good feature of addiction, a well-known feature of addiction. So I, I'm not here to throw stones at people with addiction. I'm not qualified myself to throw that first stone. But I want ultimately to point us again to Christ, to the wonderful counselor, who with compassion is saying to each one of us today, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. It is he who satisfies our addiction. 
And so in coming to this, I want to look at three questions with you. Number one, can a Christian be addicted? Number two, how can an assembly help people with addiction? And number three, how is addiction cured? So just starting with the first one, I hear this uh, question frequently uh, from a number of different sources, sometimes Christian parents, sometimes the spouse of an addict. In that case, it's typically more of a challenge. The, the, the spouse is often ch uh, challenging her, his or her uh, spouse. How can you call yourself a Christian and look at that stuff on the internet? That's the challenge. Sometimes that's asked from a place of self-righteous offense, where it's like, I would never do that. How could you do that? Sometimes, or more often, or most of the time, maybe all the time, it's also asked from a place of deep hurt and betrayal. And so we need to kind of struggle with this question a little bit. Can a Christian be addicted, and how might that work? Because it does challenge us to think about our gospel. But let me define addiction for you, first of all, which needs to have a little bit of a flexible definition. Addiction is much more than just alcohol or drug abuse. It involves more things than that. There's two broad categories of addiction. There's substance addictions, and there are behavior addictions. Substance addictions are the things that we're most aware of, that we hear about in the news. Uh, tobacco is actually the most common substance, followed by alcohol. And then there's a variety of drugs following that, marijuana, and then painkillers, cocaine, heroin, and so on. Those are the, the substances, and there's quite a variety there. And then there's behavioral addictions, which are more about just behaviors, and they don't so much involve a particular substance. Some are internet-based, everything from pornography to social media addictions to gaming addictions, shopping addictions, uh, food and eating could be behavior addictions, and exercise can even become an addiction for some people. Uh, gambling is a fairly well-known behavioral addiction. We are now aware, just in the last number of years, handful of years, of love addiction, which uh, is not what all of you that love each other experience, but a love addiction is where a person pursues the high of new relationships, one after the other. And a person can also become addicted to the pursuit of approval, addicted to work, even addicted, here's a tricky one, even addicted to gospel work. And maybe souls are saved because God is used, he always uses broken people to, to do his work. But there's an inability to stop doing that gospel work. And the negative consequences maybe are the loss of the person's family or the loss of their own health. Because they're not able to contain that and to, to work in a, in a healthy, adaptive fashion, even in that context. So behavior addictions can go to almost anything, really. Some addictions involve a great deal of immorality and sin. Others are not obviously sinful. Uh, I can even think of one case where you can have addiction and no sin, and that's a baby born to an addicted mother. That little baby's born with an active addiction, and there's, there's no sin or culpability in the child for that addiction. But all addiction does is tied to sin somehow, in that case, the mother's sin. And this leads us to the question, can a Christian even be addicted? Because... Sometimes the person who's addicted is asking this question, am I really saved? Like, how come I've been struggling with this for so long? Sometimes elders are asking the question, and fair enough, of them or, or spouses. And the short answer is yes, a Christian can be addicted. Uh, I do have a longer answer, but I'm, I'm going to give you the abbreviated one for the sake of time here. So if it's important to you to struggle with this issue, I'm happy to chat with you afterwards. 
But nowhere are we promised in Scripture that we stop sinning after we get saved. And we're not even promised that addictions go away when we get saved. We, we draw that expectation from some of the rare but inspiring stories that we hear of people that get saved, they go to the liquor cabinet, they pour it all down the drain, and they get on with their lives, and they, they've never drank a drop since. And, and we praise God for his grace in that work. And uh, not to take anything away from him in that, but just to say that in some of those cases, we could turn around and on closer scrutiny see that the addiction has transferred to something else. Perhaps to food, whatever it might be. We've uh, seen people saved uh, and they stop smoking. They put on 60 pounds. And in that case, the addiction hasn't really been cured, although the one that we don't like has gone away, is what has happened. So we, we just need to be careful in our expectations of others on these things. There's a difference between giving power, being given power over sin and actually learning how to bring that freedom to bear in one's own life. And this is where I would really invite some of the Christians to learn about addictions. You don't have to be a counselor to be a good companion, to be a shepherd to someone who's going through addiction. You can, you can do a lot just by befriending them and knowing a little bit about it. People, people that are addicted, they need more help than most believers in this area of, of overcoming sin and understanding the power of Christ, the resurrection of Christ in their life. They can break free of addiction, and they should. <clears throat> And so this is why we're talking about this today, so we can be a better support to those that are there. And just sort of one last point on this whole can Christians be addicted thing is, is just this, is that honestly most of us, if not all of us, are addicted to something. We're addicted to something. Our smartphone, try not picking your smartphone up for a day, and you'll find out how addiction is fairly close to home. Like, like I said, food is an easy one for many of us. Even uh, if I'm not regularly doing so, just the act of, you know, when I'm feeling uh, anxious, I go to the freezer. Uh, you know, there's, that's a compulsive response to something that is the same essential activity as the guy who picks up a drink to numb his pain, right? And I do that. One time my, my wife dropped a bowl of ice cream in front of me and she said, there, drown your sorrows in that. <laughs> She knows me too well, right? And uh, I'm not sure if that's nurturing or, or enabling, but <laughs> I received it with uh, some gratitude. Approval can be an addiction, like I said, TV, Netflix, binge watching. Why do we call it binge watching? Because that's a compulsive activity when we go through a series of episodes like that. So who are we then to question the salvation of others? when we have these things going on in our own hearts and our own lives. Really the only difference is we're choosing, most of the time we're choosing socially acceptable addictions and they're not. So people in, that are struggling with these, especially with the less acceptable ones, they need our Christian love, not our, our sort of self-righteous stance that I thank God that I am not as you know, other addicts are in these things, right? So they, they need that compassion from that, us and I think you all, you all get that. So let's talk then about how we can help people with addictions. I love the story of the, well, of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and I'm just going to rely on your memory of that story. She was a serial monogamist, one man after another, quite possibly a love addict. The way the Lord Jesus Christ worked with this woman it provides us very helpful insight into how an assembly can support addiction recovery. 
There are two common mistakes that we make when we're helping person, uh, persons that are recovering from addiction. The first is that we have this bad habit of shaming people. And, and so, quite often we do that out of a place of, of apparent sincerity because we want to make them or help them or motivate them to do better. But we shame them with things like, what, you started drinking again? It's a loaded comment. It comes off the platform as well. We make belittling or prideful or dismissive comments. Like we could say, like, only a fool would smoke marijuana. And, and what does that mean for, for the young person in our gathering who is legally consuming marijuana and has gotten hooked on it? Like, or, or have you just made yourself approachable with a comment like that? And no, we haven't. We've shamed them. I had a, when I was uh, in school out here, I had a, a guy tell me once that he smoked his first joint when he was 17 years old. Age 17, and that was the very first time in his life that he'd ever felt the emotion of joy. He laughed for an hour, laughed for an hour. Now, I'm not recommending this if you want to feel joy. <laughs> but can you understand how he got addicted? Like, that was a powerful experience for him. And by the time I talked to him, he was free of it. He'd overcome that. But is it any wonder he became an addict? So we have, we have no business shaming people. Shame is a, a stick that we swing at people to try to get them to do what we want. And we shame others when we call them names, druggy, pothead, whatever it might be. We shame them when we, when we show contempt towards them or disgust over news of another relapse. Our assembly discipline can be a very shaming act. And it's, it takes a very delicate, nuanced approach to, to maintain our uh, our convictions about discipline and to enact that but to do so in a way that actually doesn't drive a person further into their addictions but shame itself as a motivator it never works it's against the gospel as well the gospel says that we are all sinful that we're all broken before God <clears throat> and by that I mean that we've sinned and we bear the wounds of sin and it tells us that God's love finds its source in his own nature in himself, and not in our performance. So we're not loved on our, based on our ability to maintain sobriety. We're loved because God is love. And that's a beautiful thing. And shame, on the other hand, just tells people that they're not performing well enough, that you're not doing enough, you're not making it, you're not good enough. So shaming a person struggling with addiction does not help. It just makes it worse. And it's fascinating, if you go back through and have a little time later on, go back through John chapter 4, and the Lord Jesus, as he talks to this woman, she comes to him with a lot of shame. She's coming in the middle of the day, she's coming with her water pot by herself, but he never shames her. She mentions her own cultural shame. You're asking me for a drink of water, a Samaritan woman? And he sidesteps, he actually goes around that. He didn't call her a name for her immoral past. And even when he did point out her sin, he began with a compliment. He said, thou hast well said. You're doing a good job of telling me, is what he's saying there. And then he tells her her sin. And then at the end of it, he says, in that thou saidst truly. I really appreciate you being honest. So he's using the sandwich method that we've, most of us have heard of. And he's direct and he's honest. And he would talk about what she was guilty of. So he wasn't avoiding it either. But he was gentle. And he was non-shaming in his approach. So that's a, a challenge to us to really learn to approach folks that are struggling with things that uh, we find uncomfortable, we would rather they weren't doing as well, but to approach that without being shaming. The second mistake is that Christian love makes it easy for us to enable addiction. And this is a tricky one. I've done this. Enabling is anything that... I shouldn't look so happy when I say it. 
Enabling is anything that you or I do which protects a person from the consequences of their behavior. Simple definition, uh, but harder to, to stop ourselves from doing. Enabling is anything that you or I do which protects a person from the consequences of their behavior. So again, in John chapter 4, there's this woman, she's coming to draw water. At the wrong time of day, because she wants to avoid the shaming of other women from the city, the gentlemanly thing for Christ to do, you might say, would be for him to draw the water for her, to provide for her, to help her out, because this is obviously embarrassing for her. He never even gave her a chance to draw the water for herself. She left her pot there, and she ends up going back to the town. And so this is where it's so hard to kind of draw this fine line and to notice what we're doing. But most of the Christian things that we want to do for people with addiction, they end up enabling the addiction. When we buy them groceries, we can enable their addiction. When we take care of late or unpaid bills, we enable them. When we pray with them, this is a delicate one, when we pray with them that the Lord will take away their addiction, we enable them. Because we're joining with them in blaming God for their addiction, their ongoing addiction. Oh, the Lord hasn't taken that away from you. I wish he would. Well, why don't you deal with your addiction? You made this choice. So let's talk about how you can start making healthy choices, right? And then we'll pray when we're done. So even some of the very Christian things we do can enable them. When we pay for their detox or their therapy in full, we may enable their addiction. So it's really hard not to enable addiction. So, but thankfully in the word of God, there's counterpoints to these issues. Instead of shaming and, and enabling, when we're ministering to people with addiction, we'll have to get very good at compassion and accountability. These are kind of the antidotes for these things. So we can do compassion, we can show compassion without enabling. We do this when we respect the humanity of the people that we're working with. We treat them like the adults that they are. We expect adult things from them. We listen to their stories. We inquire about their lives. We befriend them. We get to know them. We share with them a little bit about ourselves. You have to be a little careful when you're dealing with the deeper addicts that are addicted people that may be in a criminal element about how much you share. But generally, for safer folks that, where there isn't the criminal element, it's, you, can, you can open up yourself a little bit and be vulnerable as well. It's helpful, for sure. We connect with them as they struggle, not just when they're not struggling. When they slip or they fall or they relapse, we don't dump them and turn up our noses or get mad at them. We model that unconditional love of Christ. And this can get very practical. So if a person with addiction cannot afford the full cost of treatment, an assembly could consider stepping in and helping with that. But you'd want to, again, to do that with compassionately without enabling. You want to make sure that they have the most skin in the game, the most skin in the game, even financially. Allow them to feel the struggle, the pain, like they need to burn up all their money in the recovery and not you burning it up trying to fix them, right? So they have to be involved and committed. This is probably the hardest thing that a person will do to, to recover from addiction. And we want to make sure we don't do their hard work for them. We just come alongside and show them compassion. So that's compassion without enabling. And then on the shame side, the counterpoint is accountability. But it's accountability without shaming. And again, the Lord did a marvelous job in John chapter 4. He didn't flinch when it came time to identify her problem. He was willing to do as we say. He was going to name it to tame it. And so he named the problem. He also made it clear that she was thirsting after something that continued to leave her thirsty. 
He pointed out that it wouldn't satisfy her. And we can do that for folks as well. One gentle way that we provide accountability like this is through good questions. How's that working for you? How does it leave you feeling when you smoke? How is your recovery going? How honest are you being with me right now? How do I know that? How vulnerable are you with your wife about what you're struggling with? Are you sticking to your sobriety plan? Are you pursuing relationship with Jesus Christ today? Like, don't give me fuzzy answers. I want to know what you're doing. How's your walk with God? Accountability without shaming is really helpful. But as you do this as well, not only the person struggling with the addiction, but we also can provide not so much accountability, that compassion side as well to the family of, of people that are recovering from addiction. And of course, more could be said about that, but not in the time we have. So accountability and compassion. Let's go to the last question. Can addiction be cured? And I'll just have to step on the gas slightly here. The answer to can addiction be cured is another question. Can sin be cured? Neither can addiction. So is there any hope for an addicted believer? Now, most of my addiction is in the, in the field of addiction to pornography and sex. Many men, also women. And I can't tell you how many women have looked at me with tears in their eyes asking about their husbands. Will they ever be able to stop once and for all? It's heartbreaking for them. And I tell them the truth. You know, if he's willing to do the hard work and commit to recovery, and if you will put your hope in Christ and not in him, there's a good chance that you'll be able to have a happy marriage once again. But nobody can promise to never sin again. We can't have that from another human. And so this is hard, and this is why uh, people with addiction and the family around them, they need community. And a local assembly is an ideal community for this. A healthy local assembly. Just to understand as we come then to this topic of cure that there are, we need to differentiate a little between simple addictions and complex addictions. Simpler addictions come out of curiosity, wanting to experiment with a drug or educate oneself. Maybe a, 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 sometimes kids want to educate themselves about physical intimacy on the internet, which is a really bad idea, but it happens. And those, those become simpler addictions that cure relatively quickly, but deeper or they recover from relatively quickly. But deeper addictions, these are rooted in trauma and attachment. And just follow with me here for a moment for these deeper ones, because I know some of you are working with folks that are very, very stuck in their addictions. Trauma is, is the profound negative experiences of life. Tragedy, loss, injury, threat, various forms of abuse. So that's trauma. It's when you have too much happening too fast, too soon, the person is overwhelmed. And the, the, the most uh, common version of this that we know about is PTSD from war veterans, where too much happens too fast, too quickly, and they lose good friends, and there's major violence, and they're at tremendous risk of, of, of their own lives, and so on. It creates trauma. And then you have another thing called attachment. Beside this, attachment is the science of love, when attachment is ruptured, that bond between a person and their primary caregiver, their, usually their parent, when that's ruptured by neglect or ruptured by abandonment or it can be ruptured inside a marriage by betrayal, significant betrayals, 
Then you, the person develops a sense that their own ability to safely and re reliably connect to another person, a trusted person, that that's disrupted. They're not able to connect to someone else. They end up feeling very alone and isolated. And it's terrifying. And so you can take these things now and you have deep wounds. Deep wounds, either from trauma or for, from attachment. And then addiction becomes a tool or a coping mechanism that Satan can hand to those that have been impacted in this way. These wounds that they have, they often come from sin. And Satan has figured out, why don't you cope with those wounds by adding more sin into that? And he wants that to happen. Because part of the work of Christ through the cross is the healing of wounds that come from sin. And if Satan can get addiction in there ahead of that, then the person will not take those wounds to Christ. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and with his stripes we are healed. Healing also comes from the work of the cross. But Satan uses addiction to keep people from Christ. And so yes, that addiction is sinful, but think of that addiction for a moment as a reflection of the pain within the heart of the addict. All addiction is just a misguided attempt at self-care. That's the simplest therapeutic definition. It's a misguided attempt at self-care or healing. And it doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy because only Christ can satisfy. We need his living water. And that's why these folks need our compassion and not our shame. How are they going to learn to turn that pain towards Jesus Christ for healing if the ambassadors of Jesus Christ themselves are harsh or judgmental or standoffish? They can experience that love of Christ through us, through our compassion, and that can help a lot. Think with me, too, for a moment about the, what happens in the brain of a person struggling with addiction. Every time someone turns to addiction to numb or escape their pain, they're building neural pathways in their brain. It's like ruts in a field that go deeper and harder to stay out of for somebody driving through that. The more those ruts are traveled down. And these neural pathways in their brain, they become reinforced by the repetitive nature of the addiction. And they become harder and harder to break out of. That's why the person keeps going down the same roads and doing the same thing. And the neurons of addiction that, wire to, or that fire together, literally at the cellular level in the brain, those neurons wire together. And so now you have the person's will, and you have their, the actual physiology inside their brain, and then you have the chemistry that's happening in their body, and you have the spiritual idolatry of the addiction, all becoming intertwined and interconnected inside of it. And so in the midst of, of that addiction, you have this fusion of all the dysfunction in the body and in the soul and in the spirit. And this is why take two verses and call me in the morning doesn't work. It needs more care than just throwing a couple scriptures at someone. Addiction is really hard to break. It's a master tool in the hand of Satan. And so the solution to this now, to help people into recovery, is sanctification. In the language of my profession, we call it recovery. It's a process where... Most people who have never struggled with serious addiction, we can kind of be more generalized and we can be a little bit undisciplined about our approach to sanctification. We kind of coast through life and we'll do okay. But people recovering from addiction have to be very disciplined and very intentional and very committed about their process, about sanctification. 
And just like your sanctification is never complete down here, so a person is never cured of their addiction down here. They will always be in this process. They'll always be in recovery. But they can, they can come to a place where they can live the vast uh, majority of their lives free from engaging in the sins related to addiction. And that's what we want to help them move towards. And the tasks for this are quite simple. They're going to have to develop a new, and I'm just going to give them to you as bullets here, and you can think about, and I'll give you some verse references if, you, if, you, if that's okay, just for the sake of time. They have to develop a new mindset. That's Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. They're going to have to form new behaviors. That's Ephesians 4.22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. They're also going to have to form new relationships. So if they stay in the social circle of their addiction, they're very likely to stay addicted. They need a community, a local assembly. And most of all, they're going to have to develop new worship, new worship. Because at the center of sanctification and filling the heart's need of a person in addiction is the resurrected Savior. He's the one that they need to be turned to. And let me explain and, and just close with this. All addiction is idolatry. You may have deep wounds that you've numbed with alcohol, or you or I may have overwork and exhaustion that we shore up with numerous cups of coffee a day, or we may have loneliness, deep loneliness that we carry in our hearts that we try to medicate with what we're looking at on the internet. But any need, even a valid need, or a need that is not sinful in itself, any need that you take to anything other than Jesus Christ is idolatry. And so that's why in John chapter 4, the Lord turns this woman to the subject of worship. Those that worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. Because idolatry, this core issue in addiction, me going to something on this earth to solve my needs instead of me going to something in heaven to solve my needs, Idolatry is most effectively displaced by the worship of God. The worship of God. And so I want to close by pointing us to Jesus Christ. Whether you're addicted here today, struggling with an addiction, or helping someone who's addicted, or you love someone struggling with addiction, listen to the words of Christ spoken in his hometown. He says, The Spirit of Jehovah is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Do you see him offering himself as the answer here? He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To preach deliverance to the captives. Recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Let me close with the story of Zach Williams. Zach Grew up in a loving, stable Christian home. He started experimenting with alcohol and drugs in his teens. He went in for the rock star lifestyle. Drugs, alcohol, depression, a ruined marriage, a remarriage. These things were the norm in his life until God intervened. And like the prodigal son, he came home. He came home. And his Christian song, Chainbreaker, has set the record for the longest running number one debut single from a debut artist. And it has these words, captures the gospel, maybe not in words that we're accustomed to, but it says, if you've got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom or saving, he's a prison shaking savior. If you've got chains, he's a chain breaker. 
We've all searched for the light of day and the dead of night. We've found ourselves worn out from the same old fight. We've all run to things we know just ain't right. And there's a better life. There's a better life. So if you've got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom or saving, he's a prison shaking savior. If you've got chains, he's a chain breaker. And so, dear child of God or those that are helping others, whether you're struggling with addictions or not, there is only one Savior. And listen to this promise, the promise of freedom that is found in him. Isaiah 53 again, by his stripes, we are, we are healed. We have truly a wonderful Savior. Shall I close in prayer and give thanks for the food probably? Okay. <laughs> Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to confess that he has provided so much more for us than even we take advantage of or appreciate. And so we pray for help that as we even consider this topic, all of our hearts might be turned back to him to find our needs fully met in him. We confess our idolatry, Father. We turn to things around us to try to take care of ourselves and all the time you're there waiting for us, and yet we don't turn to you. Help us, Father, to be more aware of all that you have offered. And help us in our hearts to turn them continually back to yourself for healing and for hope. Father, bless those here today that are struggling with addiction. Bless those that are helping others that have deep concern and that have spent a lot of time helping people that are recovering. Give them wisdom too, we pray. We need your help in all these things. And Father, we thank you for the assembly here. We thank you, Father, for a, another investment of labor in this meal and for your goodness in providing it for us to eat. You give us all the good things we need. You give us our daily bread every day. And we thank you for this. In the Lord Jesus' name, amen.